Go ahead. Okay. So, thanks for coming. Um, I'll talk a little bit about cloud computing and accelerators. I think some of you also have cloud computing class. So maybe a bit of overlap. Uh, if you know, happen to know somebody in my cloud computing class, then probably more of an expert on some of this than me. So feel free to ask some questions. Um, there will be a lab. I'm still setting that up. Uh, so you will get going to focus on giving you an overview of some of the biggest computers in the world, uh, some of the programming models that are used, and um, then an example program, which I will introduce to you and then want you to try and optimize. Um, do any of you do any parallel computing at the moment? Do any of you have a parallel computer? So you all have parallel computers. This is my parallel computer, um, multi-core. Um, it's going to get more. So a lot of the things I did off of this, such as QT, is actually ending up causing a lot of headache on some of the big computers because it's a pain to get going correctly. Um, but there's several million people developing stuff for cell phones. And once you have the software, it's a lot easier to port it than it is to actually um, yourself. Okay, so some of this work has been done in several other places, Michigan, Kaust, um, so I acknowledge their support, and it's also been supported by Charity. Uh, so motivation for doing parallel computing, I'll show you some pretty pictures, then we'll uh, discuss the top 500, and accelerators, and computers, and then we'll also discuss desktop supercomputing. So for a lot of applications, um, it can be helpful to have 10 teraflops uh, sitting next to you. Um, so this is an interesting area that people could be working. I'll introduce the Monte Carlo method. I'd hope to do Hadoop. Um, I think I'll skip that uh, just because introducing more than one API in detail might be too much for one lecture. So, uh, but it is on Rocket and it is another parallel programming model. So. A lot of companies use it. Um, it does also help on bioinformatics. Um, so it's also worth trying to know that. Um, the surprising thing about that is it uses Java rather than Fortran or C. Okay. So uh, is it okay to stop you and ask questions? Yes, very well. I, it's very recommended. Uh, I don't know how many understand, understand what the rocket is, for example. Do any of you know what rocket is? No, it's a metaphor. So it's. Yes, so rocket is, is something that takes you to the moon, uh, or takes you to fix the uh, International Space Station. Uh, it is also the name of the uh, university cluster. So every person at the university can get access to this and use 300 hours a week, uh, sorry, a month, for free. Right. So it has 3,000 cores? 3,000 cores. So university of Tartu cluster. So it's uh, well, 300 uh, core hours. 300 core hours a month. For free, yeah, but you can use more, and I just pay the electricity bill of that. So that, that sounds a lot, but uh, one node has 20 cores. So if you use five nodes for 
one hour, that's 100. If you use 15 nodes for one hour, that's 300. And there's several hundred nodes. So um, be careful when you're running big jobs. Uh, but 300 is usually enough. I have not found that I I just asked them to do 1,000 CD travel salesman problem optimization, so okay. they may have run out of this. <laughs> uh, it is possible, um, so be careful. Um, and you could try and use this also for optimization problems, um, especially when you need to do multiple tests. Um, uh, one, one way of trying to do travel in salesman is to do lots of restarts. Um, from different points, right? You try different paths. And you, that's, um, you can parallelize easily because you just get each core to run kind of a different problem and then you take the best result from all of them. So instead of something running over, say, 15 hours, it runs over one hour on 15 cores. Um, so it's going to be useful. Um, Usually it's not hours people are considering, it's things that will run over 30 days and they reduce it to one day, right? Um, so if you're in a business and you need to make a decision, uh, if you wait 30 days to get the answer from your computer, uh, your competition already has the answer. If you can get it to give you a decision in one day, then you can be likely to be your competition, right? Um, in terms of getting something to market. Okay. So main motivation for me, original background is engineering. Uh, so some of the problems here will be physics. I know most of you are computer science. Uh, usual problems will be related to money directly. Um, so one of the cases that's of big interest is weather and climate prediction. Uh, this is true also in Estonia. Um, so Estonia is a fairly flat country. If the sea levels rise significantly, then Estonia may have some problems. And what people here want to do is run lots and lots of ensemble simulations. So they want to try and predict uh, what the typical uh, climate is going to be like 10 or 20 years from now. Um, they're not likely to be able to predict weather on a particular day, but they can predict average quantities, right, such as average sea level, average forest cover. Um, this is what they want to do. The models are fairly poor and crude, uh, but they need to use them so that they can predict how much to tax your petrol. Right? So there's, there's an immediate application there. Um, it needs to cover the whole world, and they need to run thousands of simulations. Um, and fairly high resolution, high spatial resolution. So they need powerful computers for this. Okay. Another application is designing cars. Um, so here you see a Porsche. Uh, Porsche is actually one of the heaviest users of the Stuttgart Supercomputing Center. And what they want to do is design it so that the air resistance is as low as possible while still looking reasonably attractive. Um, so they create a mesh, they have a model for how the air will flow around the car, and they need to do this at several different speeds. So usually on a Porsche, this model 911 has a little flap at the back that goes up and down depending on the speed. And they have to uh, decide how to design that so that they minimize drag and make sure that traction uh, for the ground is as high as possible. So a similar thing is useful for Formula One cars, um, and they run lots and lots of simulations and have to analyze the data. 
Um, in this case, every simulation is also quite big. Uh, same thing for fighter jets. So here you see a mesh. Um, and in this case, the problem is that the jet actually moves, uh, can move faster than the speed of sound. And the models that people use for that are very poor. Um, so trying to find a good model and trying to simulate it um, is actually quite tough. Uh, it's also quite noisy to fly um, above the speed of sound, so you find a lot of commercial jets will be just below. So Mach of 0 0.8, um, so 0 0.8 times the speed of sound. Um, uh, but for fighter jets, uh, they want things to get there faster, and they don't care if they disturb people on the ground. Um, and they need to be able to simulate this so that they don't fly lots of jets over your head in time. They might do one or two tests, but most of the testing is done numerically. So again, they need a big computer, they need to resolve everything. Uh, second case is design of trains. So again, trains are noisy, they move fast. Um, so this here is, uh, I think, the fastest train in the world at the moment. Um, uh, currently being designed in China. And uh, if you were to take this to get from here to Tallinn, it would take you 35 minutes. Um, Not with the acceleration and braking, though. This is at the flat top speed. This would be, yeah, top speed. So assuming you don't stop anywhere and you just take this. And you start, start off with the top speed immediately. Yes. So you might add another 10 minutes because you're starting and stopping. It's a physicist's story. <laughs> um, of course, it may not be practical because you don't have enough people to use it, but uh, you need to make sure that the air resistance is low. You would typically also want to ensure that um, if you can, you can do magnetic levitation. So that reduces resistance um, and uh, typically it requires conducting magnets. Um, so those also need to be designed. Another area is solid mechanics. So here you have a bullet that's moving through some material. Um, and people want to try and understand this. Right? So one of the primary motivating factors for having these is that people can no longer really test nuclear weapons. Right? So they need to simulate how they're going to break up. And if you have an explosive, you need to figure out where all the pieces are going to go. Um, they have models for this. Again, they're rather crude, um, but it's the best that they can do. And so there's a race to be able to do these things. Another area is building crystals. So uh, this is what actually got me into hydrogen uh, computing in the first place. So I was trying to understand how crystals grow and develop, and how the microscopic characteristics influence the material properties. So um, there are these very special sorts they make in Japan. Uh, where they temper the iron so that it's not brittle, so it doesn't break, um, uh, but it's still flexible. Right? So you don't want it to be completely like chewing gum, but then it's just um, deformed. So you want it to be able to remember its shape, and, uh, but you don't want it to break if, uh, for example, you hit somebody with a sword. Right? Um, so if you're a knight and you learn how to fight, um, this is the kind of 
thing that they did several hundred years ago. Um, you want to go and have a sword fight, um, and you want your sword to be somewhat flexible, but you still want to spring back. Yeah. But they did not use computers to do that. They did not use computers, so it was trial and error. They did. There was, you know, one guy and one smith in, in the village, and he figured it out. And this was the one person that went to make everybody's swords. That you want to be able. I mean, if something happens to the smith, then it takes a long time for the next person to figure out how to do this if they do figure it out. Um, so if you're making car parts, you need the same properties for your material. If you're making train parts, you need the same properties for your material. Um, uh, I assume that if you're building flats as well, um, you also want to know what genes you want to put in there. Um, and people are all trying to simulate these things as well. Uh, so a lot of it now is kind of designing from first principles um, so that you don't have to do too many experiments. Because real experiments are hard. And also with real experiments, it's hard to see inside what's going on. Okay, so another area is fusion. Um, so they're building a reactor in France at the moment, which is called ITER. And uh, they hope to get it running. It used to be 2020, now they're putting it to 2050 um, to actually produce energy that you can use for electricity. Um, so what we have here is a hot gas. Ionized and there's a magnetic field around it, um, and that's supposed to contain the fusion reaction inside. Um, so, the magnetic field is supposed to control the gas and confine everything, so it's like a little sun. Um, of course, you don't want that hot material to get anywhere near the walls because the walls will melt. Um, so, you need to control that, and you need computers to predict what's happening. Um, so you can So, other applications are data analysis and machine learning. Um, I haven't been able to find very good pictures of these yet. Uh, I'm learning about that when I'm here. Uh, but there are a lot of <coughs> things that people do nowadays. They want uh, to be able to analyze instantaneously. And so, if you have several petabytes of data and you want to search it, uh, you need a big computer to do that. Or if, for example, you're an advertiser and you're thinking of placing an advertisement on YouTube, um, suppose you want to know how many, say, 10 year olds watch a particular cartoon on YouTube so that you can place your advertisement appropriately. Uh, I think YouTube gets something like several petabytes of data a day. And then you have to figure out the views. Um, so you need to search that. And Ideally, what you want is to be able to place your advertisement dynamically. You don't want somebody to do it for you. Yeah. And then charge based on, so then Google can charge based on the number of views. You want to be able to figure this out in real time, uh, or close to real time. Yeah. So this is what supercomputer will be used for. And the top 500 is a rank um, which people look at to try and figure out the biggest supercomputer. Um, it has changed a fair amount, so the composition of computers has changed that quite a bit. And one of the things that used to be there initially was that just the um, chips got faster. And they've added a few more, but usually not too many. Um, so now that's changing. The chip speeds have stayed the same for 
the past five or so years. Uh, and what you find is you're getting more cores. Right? So any code that was written in the 1980s or the 1990s, um, now when you run it, well, if you ran it on a computer five years ago and run it now, it's single threaded, it's not parallel, it'll run at about the same speed. Usually, um, there won't be much improvement. So you have to rewrite your code and make it parallel. Um, and the top 500 kind of gives you some idea of uh, what your computer will look like 10 years from now. Um, or 15 years from now. So this is number four. Uh, so this is a K computer. She's in Japan, right? Um, this is a biotech uh, Institute, Riken. Riken does biotech, uh, weather and climate. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I forget the other things that they do. Um, they don't do business, uh, which is what the number one computer, one of the applications they look at. Um, it uses a Spark architecture and 11.3 petaflops, so the flop is a floating point operation per second. This is not always the right measure, uh, because for some applications you don't do any floating point, or you do very few floating point operations. Right? If you're doing a search, um, the number of floating point operations is not uh, going to be as high as if you're multiplying matrices. Um, but this is what it can do when it's multiplying solving a system of linear equations. And uh, these cores are, or this chip is kind of unusual in that it has a lot of control features. Um, it's quite power hungry, but it's supposed to be easy to program. Um, okay. Next one is Sequoia. So this is Bluji. Uh, so this is made by IBM. It was the first, the last computer was made by Fujitsu. Um, if you notice, this has over a million cores. Uh, if you go back, this had about half that. Um, so these are very different architectures. Um, this Bluegene core is not very fast. Uh, so it's about roughly as powerful as what would be in a cell phone. Whereas the other ones were actually quite fast. Um, and what you notice here is it's lots of wires. Right? So they make these supercomputers by joining up lots and lots of processors. And the processors have to talk to each other, and they talk to each other through all these wires. And figuring out how to connect up these wires um, uh, is actually a non trivial task. Um, in fact, there's two kinds of chips here one is actually the compute chips, and then there's also communication chips. Um, and in this case, IBM designs the communication chips and it's proprietary, so um, it does very well, but they don't tell you how they do it. Um, similarly, the Fujitsu one, they don't tell you how they get them to talk to each other. Okay, Titan. Uh, another manufacturer, this is Cray. Um, both Cray and IBM are American companies primarily, whereas Fujitsu is primarily Japanese company, um, but if you actually look at the components, they come from all over the world. Uh, it's 
Spark was actually developed by Fujitsu and Oracle. Uh, and Oracle, or Sun which then became Oracle. That was a collaboration. Um, this has 27 petaflops. The interesting thing here is that it uses GPUs uh, rather than regular computer chips. And so these provide most of the compute power. There's one GPU for every Optron chip. Uh, and the Optrons kind of do the regular processing. Um, the GPUs are very nice if you can get fine thread parallelism. That means that if you can write a code which is um, easy to make parallel, you have lots of tasks you can do at the same time, and the GPUs are ideally suited to that. Um, they tend to be more difficult to use for things where there's lots of branches uh, taking place or lots of distributions that need to be made in the code. Um, this is also quite popular because uh, most laptops and desktop computers also have some kind of GPU on them. And those are fairly inexpensive. You can get a graphics card for less than 100 euro, and they will typically give you up to half a teraflop of performance. Um, okay, and number one at the moment is Xiaohe 2. Um, so they're using Xeon chips, um, but their interconnect is actually homemade. So the communication chips they use, they design themselves. Um, so it's actually quite expensive to make these chips. Uh, there's only a few companies in the world that can do so. Um, so a lot of time people concentrate on uh, either modifying the chips slightly and then uh, doing the interconnect. Um, so, so they actually manufacture the chips in China? The ones for the interconnect, I assume they do. But they, the main thing is the design. I'm not sure who they contract to do it, it's probably a secret, um, but they design the entire chip in China um, and then they contract, probably contract out uh, to get them built. Um, uh, I expect, I mean, there's enough chip manufacturing facilities in China that they could do it, but I don't know if they own it themselves. Um, so <coughs> they use um, these Xeon files which is what's on Rocket uh, and Tartan. And the Xeon 5 is interesting because you can program it in a very similar way to how you program your typical laptop or desktop machine. Um, but what Intel has done is they've made it a very, very simple processor core. So it doesn't do any speculative um, execution. Uh, everything is kind of uh, sequential and ordered but you have lots of cores. So right now on those are 60 cores, whereas a laptop, whereas a laptop will have two cores, um, you can get up to eight cores now, and, uh, or 16 cores in different mode. Um, but because you have 60 of them, um, you can get up to a teraflop of performance um, out of one of these cards, and the power consumption is reasonably good. Um, so to give you an idea, the Xeon will typically take about 300 watts of power. Um, so if you have 48,000 of them, um, you want to be near a place where you have cheap power. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're programming quite efficiently and quite effectively. Um, 
it's depending on where you are, it's um, about a sixth to a third of the uh, cost of the machine used every year. So, so it's 20,000 kilowatts? So 200, about 300 watts, 3,000 watts, um, sorry, no, 300 um, watts for one of these. One third of the kilowatt. Yeah. But the... Um, Times 10,000. So you 10,000 uh, kilowatts. So 300 watts. Um, and 30,000 uh, processors. In this case, uh, 48,000 processors. Thousand kilowatt. Yeah. So 15. It's like it's like thousand sauna stoves. So thousand fifteen kilowatt sauna stoves. Fifteen megawatts. So thousand very powerful saunas going on switched on at the same time. Same time. Yeah. Your small home sauna is about six, seven kilowatts. So seven kilowatts. And so So this is per day? Or oh, constantly on. Constantly on usually. Yeah. So well, what uh, well, why why this period of supercomputer is country with distributed processing? So well, it seems to me like well, obtaining fifteen megahertz of power just from well, computing well, it's, it's not that easy. So maybe it's easier to distribute the supercomputers and well, connect them by fiber optics and so the connection is actually expensive. It takes time for signals to move. Um, and also, this can be cheaper, right? So if you think of the number of people in the world with a laptop, right, and a card, and then they will also likely have a office computer, a home computer, and these will be on permanently. But they're not really using them all the time. Um, so the cost of having all this running is higher than the cost of having one computer in one place. I mean, in principle, you could reduce the power bill of the university by getting rid of all the desktops, adding another supercomputer, and you all having thin clients. It would be a nightmare because you couldn't configure your desktop as you wanted, but you don't use your desktop all the time, and the Electricity usage would be less. Um, and you'd have to wait for things to happen typically, which is why it's nicer to have your own desktop. Uh, but the idea is by concentrating in one place, uh, you can reduce some of the cost. Um, 
There are also applications, for example, finance. Um, people need to price um, stocks and decide whether to buy them. And if you happen to have a computer that's pricing stocks in Tartu, and you happen to be trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the time it takes for the signal to get here and go back will mean that somebody who has an office on Wall Street will always beat you. I will send you the link to the Grace Hopper Nanoseconds YouTube video. You have to push that. How, how, how long is a nanosecond? So how much space does that piece So if I go back, right? That's a person. So we typically will have several of these racks. Um, You'll probably fit one in this room. How big? I mean, it, it is big. It is big, but it's uh, there's there's a lot of engineering in terms of getting things fitting there. Um, one U unit in the back can hold how many of these CPUs? They come with the four. No, how many on the in the node? Uh, so you put four in the single U node, I guess. Let me see if I can. This has a very nice. Okay, so this is Sequoia. One chip, 16 cores, then it has a little package. It's in a compute card which has the memory, and then you have 32 compute cards. So. In a single view. This is, yeah. This is like a single U. And then eight of those in a drawer. And then uh, mid-plane. So you need to think about this when you're programming this kind of machine because um, when you do communication out of the mid-plane, you find that it's a lot more expensive. Um, and you have a rack, right? So two mid-planes. Um, number of I.O. is kind of up to you. So if you're doing a lot of I.O., you have more I.O. nodes. It's a little bit more expensive. Um, uh, but this gives you several teraflops. Um, uh, this is technology that's about four years old now. So you can replace all of this with a few GPU cards. Uh, but nobody's really figured out how to program GPU cards that well with all the applications. So they're still using this. And then this is their system, so it goes up to 20 petaflops. I think they can build it up to 50 with this design. Um, they haven't shown you all the cabling, which is what we saw in the other picture. Uh, but this is kind of a very compact design. Uh, and then they have liquid cooling. So uh, if you have all this power, a lot of it goes to generating heat. And so they have plumbing that's somehow integrated into this for the whole system. Um, the others are similar in terms of design. Uh, so they can add these things, put them together. Um, slightly different than the usual um, data center design. This is kind of a fully integrated system, whereas the data centers usually allow you to swap things quite easily um, and upgrade your technology. Uh, this is fully integrated, so if you want to add other stuff, you need to redesign everything from scratch. Uh, 
people. There have been, have been these designs that pack as much as possible in the sea container kind of things that you can ship just as the yes. So this bringing is, it by helicopter. Yeah, and this is very convenient because um, the computers here typically last up to three years, and then it's no longer worth running it because this stuff gets new and faster. Um, and also, if you if you have a data center. Um, you spend a lot on cooling and air conditioning, whereas if everything is in one box, you don't have to do expensive liquid cooling. You can put in uh, air conditioning for that box instead of air conditioning for the entire building. And you don't have to do this proprietary stuff. Um, so that that is a, a good thing. Um, um, and also it means that the codes that you've written for your regular cluster port quite easily, whereas with these, um, is usually a build-up period. So right now they're advertising um, for people to put in proposals uh, to build software for the replacement of Titan. So that's supposed to come online in 2018. Uh, they have proposals which are due February of next year. And the idea is that they have several teams of people working on codes even before the machine is already there and you start to port applications. So they have some idea of the chips that are going to be there. They kind of have a roadmap for the chips. And they have a roadmap for the communication hardware. And so they need people to write software and test out early versions of these things. Um, and then it comes online in 2018. Principle, you can't tell the competitors what you're doing. Um, it's, it's all secret until the machine is released. Um, and you try and uh, give feedback to the chip designers and to the designers on how to construct the machine to, so that your code runs well. Are there any simulators? Well, they have, you, you run against some simulator or how do you know how is your kernel going to perform? They have some simulators. Um, uh, they also have early design chips. So the system that they're going to say put in um, uh, to replace Titan, they say they're going to use IBM Power 9 chips. Uh, Mellanox interconnect between nodes and NVIDIA accelerators, whatever generation they expect to have at that time. Um, but the entire software stack is likely to be different than what's in use at the moment. Um, what are the Go processors good for? So do they follow compute some specific tasks? So usually the Go processors are um, designed to do a few tasks very well. Um, so in this case, the Xeon 5s are designed to be uh, competitors for graphics cards. Uh, so Intel realized that NVIDIA is doing very well with their graphics cards, and they needed to develop a competing product. Um, the drawback with NVIDIA is that you have to learn CUDA, uh, which if you're not coming from a graphics environment, um, it's still easier to program than typical uh, uh, graphics cards, but requires you to do some extra work. Whereas uh, you can take your C code or Fortran code and get it to work on the Xeon Pi. Um, it won't work fast, but it will work. And the hope is that by learning how to make it fast, uh, you don't have to spend too much time 
And also, if you then decide to change to a different technology later, you don't have to spend a lot of time rewriting code. I mean, the problem is a computer lasts three or four years. Your code will typically last 10, 20 years, um, especially if you're a company. So code rewrites are expensive. You still want to get a performance improvement. Um, so that's, that's Intel's um, aim here. Um, NVIDIA and other companies are trying to make it easier to program GPUs as well. So it's not sticking. So at this point, uh, you take a guess on what you think is going to be the best, and you invest the time to try and make it work well. If your competitor makes a better guess, then you're out of the market or you have to adapt quickly. Um, so this is supposed to get an upgrade. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'll just show you the top 500 list. So, uh, just so you get some idea what's there. So this is released every six months. Uh, this one was just released. Uh, so these are the top four, because I expect to actually be one that should be five is not being benchmarked. Um, but it gives you some idea. Um, so the top, you get the total number of cores. Um, some care is needed in how these are counted. Right? Uh, so there they say three million, here they say uh, 500,000. But the GPUs also have little cores themselves, and how you count those is uh, perhaps not so clear. Um, What's interesting here is what they measure. So that's maximum performance. Uh, there they tell you the peak performance. So they, for each chip, you can figure out how many cycles it does per second, how many multiplications and additions it can do per cycle, and you get a peak performance. Um, then running this benchmark, which is solving linear equations, they calculate that. You notice there's actually a big difference for the first one, right? So maximum theoretical performance is 54 petaflops. They get 34. This gives you some idea how easy it is to program that machine. Um, similarly, for this one, which has GPUs, maximum is 27. They get uh, about 18. Right? The power is also um, indicated here. So this here, 15 megawatts, is a good estimate. Um, obviously, that doesn't include interconnecting the chips themselves. But uh, Blue Gene and K are a lot better if you take a look at how close they get to theoretical peak. So if you had to pick one of those to program in a day, one of these two is probably better than the GPU machines unless your program is very simple. Um, but what you notice is a power difference, right? This one's uh, 8 megawatts and that's 12. This gets a lot closer to the peak, um, but you're paying for it because chip has to do a lot of smart things, and for it to do smart things costs energy. Um, so it depends. If you need to predict a disaster fairly quickly, the K is probably more useful because 
you will be able to program it easily and get your answer fast. You don't care about the energy cost. If you're running it for a year and the time uh, for development is not so critical, then this might be better because you save on the energy cost. So instead of spending on energy, you buy more rats. What is the cost structure, energy versus purchase price? Right now it's about a third for the top machines. So purchase price one third and energy you no, pay two energy, thirds. Energy is one third. One third. Over the three year period. Over yes. And at least in the US, they're not willing to go above twenty megawatts. At least that's what they say. Uh, China doesn't have too much of a problem and that might force the US to do it. Um, and China's interested not so much in the military side, but more in um, business applications, data analytics. But nothing in Iceland where the energy would be cheap. Uh, China doesn't have many natural energy resources, but they can build nuclear power plants. So for some applications, you don't want the data center or your computer somewhere else. You want it. You want to know who's running it, who has access to it. For other applications, you don't care. You move it close to a geothermal power plant, um, and you get things to run. It's not proprietary data or sensitive data. Um, and then the one that's number five here, I'll show you the pictures from that. These are individual supercomputers, but how do they relate these huge clusters and computer centers that Google and Amazon and all those must run? Because these start to be really heavy machinery by now, right? Yes. So um, I think some of the ones lower, they do run instances of this benchmark. Um, usually they only look at things that are in one physical location. Um, they, the benchmark is hard to run in a uh, fully distributed mode. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so Google, Amazon, and so on. Um, I think they must have a very dynamic thing where you keep adding and removing and keep adding nodes somehow. So they're converging. Um, initially, they started out small enough that they would take commodity PCs and put them together. Uh, now they actually have the um, commodity data center model. Meaning that they buy these one new racks and they all place them together. Um, uh, these have slightly better construction that the failure rate tends to be lower. They tend to use higher quality components. So the amount of replication needed, which is what uh, Google and Amazon will do so that they can ensure you get uh, responsive runtimes and are not affected by hardware failures, um, that starts to add up in terms of energy cost. If you have to replicate thrice, you have to um, uh, increase the cost of running things. Um, and if you're looking at something like several megawatts of power, uh, you can reduce that by half. Um, then for a lot of applications, that, that could be helpful. Also, for a lot of the data science, um, cloud computing applications, uh, the processor speed is not increasing that much. Um, so you might get away with slightly older technology. They're starting to converge, but it's not clear how that's going to happen entirely. Um, 
that's the top 500. Um, so a couple of things to note, it's not indicative of performance for all applications. It's solving a linear system. Um, it's not very communication heavy. Um, it still has enough communication that if you're using computers at different sites, that would impact your results. Um, it doesn't really give you energy efficiency, so there's a green 500 list. Um, you can try and estimate flux over power. Um, so how to do that. There's also a graph 500, which is measures how fast it can do communications. Um, so for a lot of data applications, that's probably much more important than um, top 500. And I guess the machine that should be there, number five, which is Blue Waters, hasn't run in time, so we don't quite know where it stays. Um, one of the reasons they probably didn't run this is that they spent much more on a file system and I/O nodes than they spent on compute. And they're not telling you how much they're spending on salaries for people. Um, so the traditional thing has been if you're going to or if you're going to convince somebody to pay lots of money for a supercomputer, it has to appear somewhere on this list. And so what you do is you buy lots and lots of um, cores, which can do large flops. You don't pay for memory, you don't pay for a file system, you don't pay for people to run it, or you pay for two people to run it, one sysadmin uh, and a substitute sysadmin. Um, but then you don't have people to run the right software and help applications run on the system. Um, so people are trying to think about this. Um, for some applications, uh, since building platforms isn't important, um, and you still need to kind of justify why you bought this computer, you spent several billion euros, several million dollars, um, you need to show something else. Um, so that's, um, yeah, people are thinking about this and trying to find replacements. Okay, so accelerated supercomputing. Uh, so this looks like fairly high power. Um, so the current Z on phi will use something like, uh, sorry, 100 watts. And this will give you uh, 340 gigaflops. This gives you one teraflop. So one thousand gigaflops. So here you get three point four gigaflops per watt.
is a little higher. When are you trying to calculate flops per what? Flops per what? Um, so this is on the order of two. It should be on the order of two. Let's check it. So I believe that's about 150. Um, so here you get two, here you get 3.3. So if you got as many Xeon chips, uh, your power bill would go up somewhat. So So this you get you get 340 gigaflops on the Xeon cores out of market at the moment. Uh, so this is 20 cores, um, and I think they, they use about 150 watts uh, out of market. So what you gain here is energy efficiency in going up to this highly crowded um, In terms of cost, these are still quite expensive. Um, so this is of interest for doing large-scale computations. And you can figure out how to program these. You can get your cell phone to last a week on one charge as opposed to a day. So there's also motivation from that side. Um, the problem is that there's lots of ways of doing this. So one method is NVIDIA GPU. Uh, at the moment, you get about a teraflop of double precision. Um, I'll mention double just because my uh, previous background. Some applications, single precision is fine. Other applications, you don't care about floating point. You care about integer operations or comparison operations. There's several ways to program this. So CUDA is free. Double precision is integers 64 bits. 64 bit floating point. But 64 bit floating point. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about the performance for integer operations, um, just because I haven't used those too much. Um, so the popular API is CUDA. Um, you can also use OpenGL. Uh, they have versions for uh, primarily intended for high-performance computing and others primarily intended for graphics, but usually they can do both. Um, just one not so well written compared to another. They have CUDA Fortran, which is a proprietary language introduced by PGI. Um, you can also use OpenCL. That is developed by a consortium. Uh, so there's this group, the Kronos group, which tries to get all the competing manufacturers to agree on the technology. So OpenCL is supposed to be very nice. You can program most multi-core things with it. Um, but once you do it, you still need to do a lot of work to get the code to run well. Um, so it will compile and run, but it won't necessarily run everywhere fast. So you have to rewrite your code so that it runs fast in each different machine. Um, then there's OpenXEC, which is a directive-based language um, that sits on top of C and Fortran. Uh, so do add some directives and the code runs there for you. So CUDA, you typically have to rewrite the code. AMD also have their Firefly GPUs. Um, at the moment, they just support OpenCL and OpenACC. So one thing NVIDIA that's done really well is engaging with universities and getting them to teach people how to program in CUDA. Uh, they show up at university. They give you five GPU cards for free. You go and create lots of video games. You're very happy. You can go and get a job. How to program CUDA and get your company to buy 20 GPUs. Right? Um, so 
you learn how to program, and then you can learn how to program. Um, and increase the speed at which you solve problems. Uh, uh, well, uh, in supercomputers, they also have GPUs. Are they well, connected to well, each other, or are they connected to well, processors, well, division processors? Okay, so typically a GPU is a dumb device. It needs a host CPU. Um, you can connect more than one GPU to a CPU. So it does depend what application you're looking at. Um, Titan uh, has one GPU per CPU so that it can do communication effectively. Uh, Tianhe 2, I think on most nodes it's one Xeon 5 per CPU, but not all. Some have more Xeon 5s. Um, it does depend on what you're doing. If you're a finance company, what you'll typically do is get one CPU and put eight GPUs on it. Because what you need is the high compute power and they don't usually need to talk to each other too much. Um, if you're doing something where you need lots of data and you need to process that, you'll probably do one GPU per CPU so that you have Lots of IO nodes you can connect to your clock system with. Increase, increase the throughput. Um, it does depend. At the moment, they're looking at, uh, so if I go there, okay, I think I had this slide. Um, but this might give you some idea. So this is a board, parallel. Uh, they have an ARM CPU, FPGA, and then their accelerator, which is somewhat similar to a GPU. Um, so this doesn't have very high teraflops, um, but this will use five watts. Um, so it's the entire board is five watts. The entire board is five watts. Two percent teraflops. So here you're getting two gigaflops per watt. Uh, there you're getting 20. Uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, this is two watts. They have two versions. So it's not a lot. You need a lot of them to give you the same power. You need to program very well if you're going to use this. But suddenly you're at the point where you can, I mean, if, if you're getting these kinds of efficiencies, um, uh, you can start to think about building a huge computer or this huge building point uh, computer. You're talking about the general CPUs and GPUs. Yes. Whenever I go to conferences, there are these hardware manufacturers that try to get me into buying FPGA programmable yes. computers that take your algorithm, uh, compile it for your FPGA, actually well, FPGA, FPGA somehow modifies the CPU itself, right? So none of these has FPGAs at the moment. So this one has FPGA, but most of the others do not. And that's just because there is a lot of legacy software that people do not want to rewrite. Um, FPGAs are starting to become more important, uh, but they were not at the point where... But nobody has done this Limpack for FPGAs, sort of like the, for Limpack 
benchmark that would be the best? Um, I'm not sure. I expect somebody has, but nobody's built a big system with FPGAs. But individual boxes can do quite a lot with the FPGAs, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it depends on the task. Like with the, with the FPGAs, well, they are like self-modifying circuits. So well, if the problem is, well, it doesn't apply well on circuits, then well, then... And, and then you fix it only for this one task. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, it depends on the task. So you're probably wanting to build a great FPGA to build this link factor. So it could be much easier in Yes. Yeah. Um, so the idea has usually been, well, the idea at least 10 years ago was that floating point was the limiting case for most scientific boats. We still need to look at the answer, process the data. Um, the thought was that that took much less compute time. So we still need a computer to do it. Usually what they would do is they'd have a separate cluster to do visualization data analysis. But if your data set is already several petabytes, you don't really want to build another computer for that. Um, yeah. Uh, so we'll go back. So there's this AMD. So this is OpenCL, OpenACC. Again, about a teraflop. And Xeon Phi also about a teraflop. Uh, the nice thing about here is you have, you know, OpenMP, MPI, Fortran C, Silk, which was a uh, language developed by MIT and then uh, bought out by Intel. Um, so trying to find easy ways of writing parallel code is a hot topic, especially when you have these accelerators and you want to combine them to CPUs. Um, so people don't want to code too much. You want it to be easy to understand what the code is doing. You still also want the code to um, compile efficiently for the architecture. And if you have several different architectures, this becomes a nightmare optimization problem. And vendor is always going to try and get standards bodies to do things that are suitable for their next coming product. Um, so there's a bit of fighting that goes on. Um, it takes a while, and then. It also takes time for programmers, you typically, to learn the languages, develop code for them, um, and then make it successful. So NVIDIA succeeded with CUDA, uh, but there's uh, still other things. Um, so Tegra K1 combines GPU and CPU on the same die. One of the problems with these GPUs is you have to communicate out of the memory space, and that can be tricky to program and can also be slow if you have a software abstraction that hides that from you. So this is a step in that direction. This is kind of targeted mobile computing, but because of energy efficiency, it's also very useful for supercomputing. Um, AMD has this uh, APU, similar kind of idea. Um, so because these combined GPUs and CPUs, the energy efficiency is higher than it would be for a regular CPU. Um, and especially if you're doing mobile computing, you have a screen, you want to watch videos, uh, you want to stream things using, say, um, Skype, and you don't want to use too much power. So if you want to have a conference on your phone for a whole day, um, this is the kind of technology you want. Um, 
Here it's just single precision. Uh, the double precision performance isn't quite as good. Uh, Intel has their own HD graphics. They haven't really targeted this at high performance computing, whereas AMD is starting to do that. And they'll likely probably move into that space soon. Okay, so we've talked a lot about chips. Uh, we need to communicate. Uh, so we can think of chips as being people. We have to get all of you guys to do some task together. The task is very easy and you can do it separately, such as you have homework to do, you don't need to talk to each other. Um, but there can be cases where you need to cooperate, and so then we bring you all into one room, you shout at each other, all of you are shouting at the same time, nobody hears each other, so you need some infrastructure to support that. Okay. Typical thing people have used is gigabit Ethernet. Um, so they have these Beowulf clusters. Uh, very simple idea, you take Ethernet cards, a switch, and you connect up several desktops, and then you install a software there on top of that that allows you to do communication. Um, it's cheap. Uh, you can't talk very fast over Ethernet. Um, I mean, you can still stream videos and things, but a lot of computer applications, this is still not fast enough. And there's a bit of a delay because of all the software loads that are on there. Um, so it does take uh, time for the appropriate protocols to be used um, so that you can send messages uh, efficiently or easily. Okay. Uh, Ethernet speeds are increasing, um, primarily because technology is improving, people also want to stream lots of video. Uh, so at the moment, a lot of clusters will use uh, what they call 10 gigabit or up to 40 gigabit speed Ethernet. Uh, the price also increases. So a previous one, uh, you can get a switch for I think 10 euro uh, Ethernet card. Um, well, if you don't have integrated Ethernet card, Ethernet card for another 10 euro and the cable for one euro. So you can put together the communication for uh, four computers, maybe like 50. Uh, when you go up to this, price jumps up. Um, you're at several thousand euros. Uh, but it's a lot faster, so if you need to process end-to-end communication, this is useful. And the nice thing is, because it's Ethernet protocols, um, there's already a lot of software. That's the advantage Ethernet has over the next technology, which is InfiniBand. Um, so that's about 50. Um, Latest versions will give you 100, but uh, that's still kind of leading edge. Um, there's a few companies that do this, uh, but there's an entirely different software there. Um, uh, so it may look like it's going to disappear um, just because Ethernet's catching up. And then there's all the proprietary stuff. So Cray, the current one is called Ares. Fujitsu, they call theirs Tofu, and then IBM, they always list it as proprietary and never say don't do anything. Um, but they typically here will take uh, their own chip, do the design. That's a good name, IBM proprietary. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it capital P. But it, it, it doesn't, um, so whenever they design a new generation, it doesn't change. So they don't tell you anything new. Um, and you have no reason to go and um, buy an upgraded computer. 
Um, whereas Cray and Fujitsu, they, uh, every two years they change the name, so now you have a new computer. Um, uh, but I mean, they, they tell you whether, or they give you some idea about the topology. Can I ask a stupid question about Ethernet? So in the beginning it was uh, this single cross cable. On the single cable everybody was shouting, right? And yes. they, they were like shouting over each other. Yes. And you had to wait for the moment of silence so that your message goes through somehow, right? Yeah. Uh, in the new current you have the direct wire somehow. They don't, do they still shout on each other the protocol or how, how does it, so each protocol has changed? Most of them bi-directional. Uh, meaning that from point to point, sort of like I, I have this channel from here to there. I have this entirely to me. So the the wire will usually take signals in both ways. Um, then you have a choice of how you connect up your computers. Uh, in the sense that uh, if you have only a small number of computers, you can connect all of them directly to each other, and they can all talk to each other without any problems. If you have more than that, usually you need some kind of switch. So then, uh, so suppose you have four computers. So Two was designed by National University of Defense 
technology in China, and they they're also there's a company expert, um, but I believe it was one of the Zhang University, and they refused to take Intel's technology. So Intel wrote to the Zhang and said, "You can't say no, we want to do that now." Surprise! Um, Intel claimed that they could do better, and they just got awarded several contracts by the U.S. government to journalists. Um, yeah, they decided they wanted to do it. Um, that's not a trivial task. Um, but it's changing. Um, so Intel, for example, bought Cray's interconnect team. Because a lot of this is moving on chip, and they figured that uh, they could get that technology easier by buying it into that team themselves. Um, and it's true. A lot of software other than just hardware. Um, okay, so for most of these computers, this is half of the cost, just the communication side. Um, of course, you need to figure out the application needs that. Right? Some applications, something that's as simple as this will do, you can't do Web applications, not so much. Okay. So, personal clusters. Uh, these GPU cards can give you a teraflop of performance. If you get 10 of them together, that's 10 teraflops. Um, that's a lot of compute power. You can actually do some interesting science and business applications. Um, we, or University of Tartu, um, just got a team entered in this student cluster competition. Um, so they're going to be trying to build one of these things. Um, and typical things you can do with this. Uh, tomography, animation rendering, uh, computer design, database search. Computer games look like an interesting area. Um, so, so far a lot of computer games are uh, single GPU, single processor. Um, but if you want to have really good graphics, uh, you would like to use multiple GPUs. Um, so, but it takes effort to actually write code to do this, and there's already a lot of um, legacy code there. Um, so this would be an, an interesting thing to do. And one of the problems is this competition is just undergraduates only. Um, I don't know if any of you would be interested in making your own. Yes, yes. master students are okay. First year master students without any uh, with very little help are also okay. Meaning you have to choose the team. That's who they are. Okay. Is this of interest? How many of you have a personal computer at home? Not a laptop, but a personal computer. How many of you have a PlayStation or some other gaming device? How many of you just rely on the laptop? So, well, if there's interest, please let me know. Um, it might be nice to try and do this. Um, there, there does seem to be a growing industry in doing these custom designs. 
Um, I mean, I know at least in physics, uh, they already have been doing this. Right? They've had large data sets they have to process. Um, the original blue gene was actually just designed to do um, lattice quantum chromodynamics. Um, so it had very little memory. Um, I think something like half a gigabyte per core. Um, and they could put 200,000 cores together uh, and very good communications. Um, they actually had a separate network um, just to do a reduction operation. Um, and that's kind of still there in the blue gene systems. Um, separate network because the reduction doesn't take much data. Um, as the other operations would do, and they need to do reductions quite often. Um, okay, so quick introduction to parallel computing. Uh, you're going to have to do some exercises. I'm told you can all program really well. Is this true? Why did you ask? They you you can all program very well. They can. By now they can. Okay. Good. Uh, Don't you? So are you happy to compete against each other? So you have to figure out if you can write the fastest code. OK. So very simple idea. You have to make 99 salads. I'll take three people. Um, and there's a variety of ways to do this, right? You each make 33. Or you each take a separate task and do this. So if you're all equally good at making salads, and you're very fast, then dividing it up so you each make 33 salads is good. Typically, some of you will be better at doing one thing than another thing. Right? So much as a chip will have separate functional units, um, it then make, makes sense for you, some of you to do one task. Um, but if you're going to divide things up, uh, there will be some synchronization that's required. right? So if one is used cutting carrots, another's cutting tomatoes, another's cutting beetroots, to make a salad, you still need to mix them. So making the, the speed of making the salad will be determined by the speed of the slowest person chopping up one of these vegetables. And then the mixing will typically take up some uniform portion of time. So for each algorithm, you can actually do an operation count. Um, but the operation count doesn't tell you the full runtime because you need to figure out how long each different operation takes. Um, so you need to find a reasonably good model for that and do some optimization. Um, the compiler needs to do the same thing. So uh, there is some work there. And if you're designing a chip, you need to figure out what difficult things people need to do fast and put those functional units on the chip. Um, OK. Can you all make salads? Yes? OK, so that's the main idea. Um, how do you do this? Any of you know C? One person. Two people know C. Three. Java. Lots of agreement. Python. Very good. Pascal. Ah, OK. Fortran. Fortran. <laughs> okay, so we had to write some frogs on paper, yes. Okay, 
I mentioned Pascal because I mostly use Fortran coming from engineering. Um, you can also use C. Uh, and what we'll introduce is MPI. So MPI is a message passing interface, um, which is quite popular at the moment for doing distributed memory parallelism. So if you have separate computers and they're all connected up, um, they don't share uh, the same RAM, then you need to tell, or then you talk to each other, you need to explicitly read messages around data. Um, and if you have done threaded programming, you need to Java, I suppose, use Java threads or C++ threads. Okay. Uh, those also seem to be converging in the sense that people are trying to introduce programming languages where you can um, address or get data remotely without explicitly reading the data in the code yourself. Um, so the compiler should hopefully try and do this for you so you can write code much more easily. Uh, the performance will still likely not improve much over MPI because um, the data still has to be able to take public. But in terms of programming, it's a lot easier. You mean the NUMA type architecture? Uh, so you already have um, NUMA on the chip, but the idea is that um, within your code, um, you can uh, uh, tell it that um, a portion of an array is held somewhere else. And so you just annotate your code slightly differently so that it knows it has to go remotely get this piece of data from another uh, computer and bring it to you. Um, uh, so it will it will kind of behave like NUMA, but even worse, right? Um, but the advantage is it's much easier to write the code and it's a lot more portable. Whereas NUMA will typically um, share RAM, but the um, access time from different cores for RAM is not the same. Um, so some portions of RAM are held a lot closer to or uh, bound a lot better to some cores than to others. Um, and there are several uh, bindings which allow you to use Python. I think I noticed on Rocket there's also anti-Java. So that's a binding that allows you to use Java distributed memory mode. I haven't tried it. Um, you're free to try it for some of the exercises if you want. Uh, and then there are many tutorials available online. So um, I'll show you a Hello World program. I'll put in the link rather than uh, This is Fortran. Uh, it was built from an OpenMP version. Wikipedia tends to have a lot of example programs for this. Um, the C code would look very similar. Uh, I'll just try and introduce the main idea. So let's assume that you're all different processors. 
so the first part just tells it it's a program, second part tells it to use the MKI library. And then Fortran had this terrible or either useful feature that you didn't have to take care of variables. So it would take certain letters and it would add integers and runs. Um, here you're just telling it that all variables have to be taken care of. And then you need to get an integer. So first integer you need to declare is the processor ID, the total number of processors, and then an integer to collect a return error code. Um, if you're writing very good programs, you would check this error code every time. Um, uh, I tend to assume that the computer is well built, so the errors are um, not don't happen too often. You just check the answer at the end. So the first part uh, calls MKINet. So the program is started. You kind of all walk into the room, and we say that we're all going to talk to each other. So we check that we can all talk to each other, and that's started. And then the next thing is it figures out the total number of processors. So can we do that? Uh, so we start at Yak is one. Sorry, what's your name at the back? Yugo. Yugo, you're two. Andres. Number? Three. Luna. Okay, number? Four. Number five. Six. Name? So this returns 12, and then each process returns its ID. It doesn't usually say its name, but uh, we've done that. And then we go and say hello. So Yak would say hello. 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 And your ID is? Two. Okay. Hello three. Hello four. Hello Okay, very good. And then we have a barrier, so there's a synchronization point. So we all stop, we've all said hello. In principle, uh, MPI doesn't force you to actually say hello in sequence. So you could have all said hello, and as long as you all say hello at some point, and we got 12 hellos, we'll be happy. The numbering usually starts from zero, it's supposed to one. You can tell I'm a Fortran person because I start at one. C people start at zero, MPI is written at C. And so at this point, Yak would say that there are 12 MPI processes. So we go from 0 to 11, and then say that there are 12. And then we stop. The reason you want this if statement is I showed you the computers which have uh, 1,500,000 cores. So if you're going to do print statements on 1,500,000 million cores, you don't want every core to give you a print statement. You want typically one or two print statements. And if you're trying to debug these programs or run uh, trace analysis on them in several thousand cores, or several millions of cores, um, you need to be very careful how you engineer that and how you load all that data. Um, so I do the easy part, I just write the programs. The people who write the debuggers and the trace analyzers have to be twice or thrice as smart. So that's it uh, in terms of MPI. Uh, it's a fairly easy interface to use. Then you need to get this to run on Rocket. 
see your compilers, and then you submit this. So you typically need to tell it how many processors you want. And on Rocket, um, each node has uh, 20 cores, so two CPUs is 10 cores each. But the CPUs share memory, or can address each other's RAM, so they both have uh, shared memory. And then you tell it uh, 10 cores per socket. So each socket has one CPU, and then one thread per core. You can't do hyper-threading. I think by default it's uh, off. Um, for some applications that's helpful. And then you tell it to load up this library, which is um, this is the MPI stuff, and then you tell it to run the code. Um, so one of the examples you're going to look at is calculating an integral. Uh, this is embarrassingly parallel in that the communication is fairly easy. So to calculate an integral, we will typically take the value, um, do this, but uh, one way of thinking about it is you're taking the size of the region which you're integrating and multiplying that by the average. And so what you're going to do here is find another way of calculating the average. Um, I assume you're all computer scientists, so you don't like doing integration. Particular did it for you. And you can do this in two dimensions. You get the area in which you're doing the integration, multiply that by the average. And if you're doing statistics, um, you're calculating an average. You can also calculate standard deviation, which is some measure of the error. So in this case, you calculate a value and then some idea of how um, close you are to the real value. So the average is very simple. You just take the function and you evaluate it at lots of different points. So, you just evaluate the function here at randomly chosen points. And that gives you an average. And then you just multiply the total area. And the reason this is parallel is because you can calculate uh, this function value at the same time. Right? So there's 12 of you. If you each give a different function value and then I add them all up and divide by 12, I get some idea of the average. If you each give me 100, so then I get 1,200 numbers which are all different, or hopefully all different, uh, then I get an even better approximation because uh, the error also One of the problems is, if you all do this in parallel, and you all choose to give the same random numbers, uh, then I don't get any benefit there. So you need to be sure that how the random numbers are picked um, is, is correct, um, in the sense that they're all independent. Um, but for the application you're doing, I think this should be fine. Um, if your salary depends on it, or if your pension depends on it, be very careful how you do this. You need to do the random number generation quite carefully. And there are people who specialize in doing just that for 50 years. Okay, so this is an example of Python code. Um, it just gets a total number of points, it does a loop, picks up a random point, calculates the integrand, and then at the end it divides up by the number of points and multiplies by the area also gives you an error estimate. 
And the main thing you can do is you can do this weekly parallel. Right? So those are some results. You get a body of the integrand. Um, I'll show you the Fortran code, uh, which you can rewrite in C or Java. So, picks up, main thing here is a loop. It's a random number. The random number is between zero and one. So you need to check what the random number generally gives you. You scale it to the interval, and then you add it. Um, so in this case, the integrand is zero, upper bound is one. And it should calculate pi to some approximation. Um, so you can do this in parallel. So MPI has been designed so that all this legacy code can be made parallel without too much work. Um, so you have the whole initialization. You have a little bit of counting because the number of points may not divide exactly into the number of processes that you use. So here you have 12 people. If I happen to choose 145 points, uh, one process is going to have to do a little bit more work than the other processes. So you make sure you do that. Um, uh, sometimes doing this is not so good. You might actually decide that you're going to do each process a little extra work. Um, so this may depend on the computer and number of points you're using. And then you call up the random number generator. So each process, so every process is going to run this program. So, uh, Unless you have one of these if statements where you actually look at the specific process ID, every process is going to do this. The assumption is that they will each generate different random numbers, and then we'll add the sum. So this here is all parallel so far, no communication, very easy to divide. And then at the end, it does this reduction. So what this does is it's an MPI command. It takes the local value of sum, which is my sum here, and puts it into this one variable sum. And it's of size 1, and it's a type double precision, so um, 16 bytes. Um, and there are other types you need to check, so if you're sending integers, you can use those as well. This is the operation you're doing. Um, other operations are max, min, and so on. And then this is a communicator, um, the idea being that uh, you're all in one room, but I may decide to partition the room in half because half of you will constitute one task and you may want to do your communication separately so that the other half of the room doesn't have to hear it. It's not necessary. Um, and then it times the code and then uh, it calculates the final value. Right? 
So they all receive this value sum, and process ID just tells how long it took in the bottom part of the table. This is the simplest kind of parallel programming to do. Uh, things that people worry about when doing parallel programming is if they're trying to access data um, that other processes are using. Um, people say this is the hard part about parallel programming. Um, you have to make sure that there's no conflicts. Um, if you've done thread programming, you will have seen some similar things. You can't access a variable that, or you typically have to lock a variable that another thread is using. Um, we have some useful stuff over here. This form of programming. Um, and so what you will need to try and do is try and make this as fast as possible. Um, and then we want to figure out how much faster we can make things. Right. So the random number generation is n over p. So you're going to generate n random numbers, uh, p processors. You can do that at the same time. So that you can do very fast. Local addition, you can also do n over p. Right. So that speeds up as a number of processors. Obviously, you will typically want n to be much bigger than p. One of the problems with the newer architectures is that you get to the point where p is so large um, that n is less than p and it doesn't multiply the extra processors. Um, so this only works well in some cases. And then you have reduction. Um, so what I've noted here is factory topology. Um, and it will take log p time. So here the hardware matters. Uh, if it's something like this, then typically the piece of information is going to have to be over across. And the reduction will take the same time as another processor. So trying to figure out good models for this um, is both a mixture of software and hardware. Um, and then you figure out the optimal number of P. This gives you the min one time. So this is how you want to analyze a parallel algorithm and figure out effective ways you can speed things up. Okay, so summarize and help you solve scientific problems faster. Tianhe 2 is also made to solve business problems and what they call government security problems. Um, so a lot of those computers, I say, are world's fastest known. Because if you are CIA, you are not going to advertise how fast your computer is. Um, well, I, I have read, for example, a book before where they thought the way that the NSA collects all the data and collects everything. Then uh, from looking at well, which power plants were built near the, with the NSA headquarters, well, some people were able to well, estimate uh, what's the, well, the computation of power. Yes. I agree. Uh, another case that maybe uh, so those ones you can usually guess a little bit better. Of course, if the computer is in the power plant and the, you don't quite know the capacity of power plant, then uh, not so helpful. Another case that's probably more interesting is if you're a bank and you're doing information processing. Um, suppose you're Bank of America. You're not going to tell JP Morgan who you're buying your computer from and how it's made. Still, so we'll figure out how fast they can run certain algorithms.
the speed of the bank calculating something is really coming from this high frequency trading of what, what is the so one area when do they really get into this kind of I don't know nanosecond time that I need to beat somebody by milliseconds yes so this is high frequency trading and a lot of it they will do it should be forbidden right Depends. If it, if it secures my pension, yes. Uh, if it means that there is a recession, then... Sorry, if it secures my pension, no. If it means that there'll be a recession, then yes. Well, the high frequency trading of the markets would be like the Estonian market. No, there's no action, basically. And they, the algorithms, they would they take the action and provide it with the head stops and I mean, so something like Estonia might be interesting because there's more opportunity for finding discrepancies. So the usual way high frequency trading works is it looks at a basket of goods, like a basket of stocks, and then tries to find opportunities whereby selling to some people and buying from others, you can make a bit of money. Um, this is all fine if you have one computer and a million rational people. If you have suddenly have uh, 10,000 computers and a few rational people, then you know, it's computer training with another computer and things go wrong. They do. So this is a simulation. I guess I won't show you the video, but this is our current number five computer in the world um, using Fourier transform, which is a lot of things I do. And up to 500,000 cores, that's the improvement in speed. So, ideal is a blue line, and that's a dot. Um, summary here is if you have the software, it's easy to run some of these things. The hard part is getting the software. There are a couple more. Um, so, I'll stop there. I'll mention this text, which is available for free. Um, and should teach you how to speed up codes on the Xeon 5. So for your homework assignment, um, if it involves running things on the Xeon 5, you should download that and take a look at it. So thanks for your attention. Hope it wasn't too boring. And I hope there's okay. any email. Thanks.